This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Welcome, listeners, to yet another amazing Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, this week, I'm going to be your host. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. Um, with me this week is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this fine morning, Nathan? I've got a little bit of a cold, but I'm doing all right. And more importantly, uh, when our listeners are listening to this, I might be in my doctoral dissertation defense. Oh. So next week it'll be Dr. Gilmore. Yeah, next time we record. Wow. Do, do, do we get a fanfare <laughs> for that, Michael? I don't have one, but I suppose I could find one and put it in right here. Well, no, I mean, I mean, like, like when it actually happens. But uh, wait, no, you can't do that. In real time. Never mind. I have a magical <laughs> notion of what's possible with sound editing, Michael. So Yeah, all yeah. the sound effects you hear, except like us messing with our microphones, all that is added in post. So no, I can't do it live. <laughs> yeah, the microphone stuff is when I forget to hit mute before I scratch. Not just you, it's all of us. Yeah. Well unless you I, I, I'm always horrified by this with your mouth. I'm I'm always horrified by the sheer number of times you can hear me go. <sighs> During the show, I forget to mute myself. Our listeners should know that when they hear that, I'm not actually, it's not an exasperated sigh. I just can't breathe very well. Unless I'm talking at the moment. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh. Here he goes again. Well, the the uh, third interlocutor in this uh, conversation already in progress uh any new listeners? That's that's Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English. I'm actually I actually maintain and, my identity even if the listener is has been listening for a while. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, uh, let's see, Crown College in Minnesota. Yeah, so Saint Bonifacius. Yeah, I I, I trust things uh, things are 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 well are tolerable, etc. It's a beautiful morning, you know. The yeah, moon was, yeah, the moon was full. It's cold outside. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that tells you something about when this is happening, listeners. Right. right. Uh, well, this morning, um, this morning, yeah, this morning, this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about sidekicks, but we've got to hold off on that scintillating topic for uh, just a few moments and do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, First, uh, have we got any feedback from last week's last week's episode, the one before that, anything like that that needs we needs got, mention? We got lots of comments on the blog about the romanticism episode. Yes, we did, and, and they Clearly came very quickly. Timely. Like like they, that episode hadn't been up for about a couple hours before we got three or four comments. So, right. And I should apologize, listeners. It was me who didn't upload the episode. My daughter was sick, and I just my getting my ducks in a row. That duck got left out. <laughs> mm. yeah, sadly, we don't have enough unpaid interns in order to pretend that we aren't real people with lives that intervene. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we could farm out the production and uploading of this to one of our colleges. Mm. First, then the college would probably own it. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm just trying to think of requesting work study hours for that. <laughs> you you, you got to be careful. Your supervisor might actually go back and listen to one of the old episodes. <laughs> yeah, true enough, true enough. Uh, I'm just thinking, I mean, once they stopped laughing at my request, you know. That <laughs> but uh, we also got some feedback on the uh, Phil Carey episode, the Good News for Anxious Christians. 
I probably should apologize to my little brother. I think I got ugly on him a little bit quicker than I should have. Um, he asked, you know, what is a perfectly sensible sort of evolutionary biological question about the development of religion. And I didn't intend for it to come out that ugly, but then I went back and looked and said, oh, goodness, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of went mad dog on him. Uh, well, that happens. That's what Internet. family's all about, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, family plus just the dynamics of faceless Internet discourse. Nathan turns into Hitler. Well, that also it was a continuation of a somewhat heated conversation we had had over Christmas. So, I, I think that my brain sort of picked up a signal that that conversation was just continuing, and I'm n- not sure now that that was the case. Mm. <laughs> okay. Well. Anyway, yes. Gil- Gilmore family matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, humanness it gets us. Um, let's see, stuff on the blog, we've had some, uh, you know, some lectionary posts and some, some, some lectionary posts. Wait, and do we still I, have a blog? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it got repossessed or something. As, as I've said before, good listeners, once I get this dissertation defense out of the way, I've got about four essays I've been waiting to write. I just haven't had time to write them. So they even will that be up res- there at some point. Even that response makes me feel terrible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and here's why. It's because the other podcast that I listen to, I'll listen to it and I'll sort of jot down in my notebook, I need to write something in response to that. And then that's uh, all the more I get time to write. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the right response sentence in your notebook? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right now I've got about four of those that I still remember – what I was going to respond to, so. <laughs> awesome. Well, I uh, reckon we should probably move on here to the, the, the meat of the discussion. Um, Nathan, back yes. in the day, back in the day when I took a course on world mythologies, which was awesome, uh, we read, of course, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, and we talked about cultural kind of first heroes like Gilgamesh and Beowulf. Of course, I've read Gilgamesh and I've read Beowulf. I mean, of course I've read Beowulf. Uh, and these these heroes, like so many heroes, they don't adventure alone. Um, no, they don't. So... If I'm if I'm getting my sources for how to think about hero tales from Campbell, how does Campbell's approach to the story lead us to think about the hero's sidekick? Uh, it leads us to marginalize the sidekick in a way that I think is somewhat unfair. I mean, Campbell is very, very interested in creating a template for all mythology. Uh, and for that reason, he tends to boil things down to the least common denominator, and sometimes he boils them too far. Uh, Uh, And in the cases of Beowulf and of Gilgamesh, I mean, what you've got is, you know, Campbell is so maniacally focused on the solitary hero that he leaves out the fact that their actual texts, their actual stories, derive a lot of their power from other characters who journey with them. So, for instance, uh, Enkidu, who has the powers of all of nature and you know, is a threat to overthrow Gilgamesh until he discovers girls. Or at least I think that's how I remember it. Um, You know, he is, by all means, someone who is a part of Gilgamesh's story in an integral way, not as a side... Well, he is a sidekick, I guess. Uh, But he's not a side episode. I mean, he's with him. Uh, He is the motivation for Gilgamesh to go and seek out eternal life. Uh, You know, I mean, when... I'm trying to think. Is it Humbaba who kills Enkidu? I think so, yes. Okay, I, I always confuse the the Cyprus giant with the uh, literary critic, who is Homibaba. There we go. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Ho- Homibaba homie only kills, uh, kills my soul when I read him. <laughs> anyway. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, if you think about a, a Mycenaean parallel, you know, I mean, uh, Patroclus as the companion to Achilles, it's the same sort of dynamic, right? I mean, you can't really think of Gilgamesh or Achilles, at least in their moments of glory, without thinking about their motivation, which is the death of their close friend. Now, when we get to Beowulf, uh, Wiglaf is a much younger character than Beowulf, uh, and he represents the best of the next generation, so to speak. Uh, and once again, it's one of those things where Campbell's monomyth, to, to use the common term for it, uh, tends to focus on a very young hero, tends to downplay, not entirely ignore, but certainly downplay the aging process. Uh, so it's one of those things, David, and I'm, I'm, I realize I'm kind of wandering all over the place here, but it's one of those cases where the old texts themselves turn out to be more sophisticated than the most famous theory that tries to make sense of the old texts. Uh, in other words, the old texts have a capacity for a fairly philosophical conception of friendship and a fairly philosophical conception of aging and the succession of generations uh, that Campbell's approach tends to downplay. I mean, if you're watching your Star Wars movies, Campbell's great for it. You've got your solitary hero, Luke Skywalker. You know, he doesn't really come into his own until he gets separated from Han Solo. Um, but when you're talking about the old myths, frankly, they're a lot more social than that. Uh, is there anything, David, that you would add to that? I, I just kind of love that Beowulf, I mean, Beowulf is itself, I mean, it's many things, but one of them is a meditation on hero life. Sure. You know, just like Campbell is meditating on hero life, so is the Beowulf poet. And, uh, I mean, you could look at that last phase of Beowulf's adventures, uh, the ones when Wheelof steps up to the plate and helps him out as uh, almost an answer to that solitary hero view. Sometimes the hero oh, yeah, can't, yeah. can't do it alone. Um. You know, and, and that yeah, I, th I think that's uh, it, it's it's interesting to put those two in dialogue um, as meditations right. on on hero tude heroosity anyway heroism. <laughs> I'll take that. Well, and, and David, I think it's interesting too that, and I you know I realize we're being very meta discursive here lately on the podcast, but our last episode on the romantic movement, the strong emphasis on the individual. I wonder mm -hmm. if that is shading. Campbell's theories in a way that would have been alien to the Babylonian epic writer, to Homer, and to the Beowulf poet. I think that makes some. I think that makes some sense, especially given that the the unironic hero story, not the Byronic hero story, but the right, right, the one that the one that goes back to mythology or medieval romance uh, is is one that was recovered by at least one kind of wing of, of romanticism. Um, the, the sort of late, late romantic, early Victorian, uh, pre-Raphaelites with their obsession with the medieval. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of resurrect this, this character and the way it, the way you see it a lot is, is the lone knight, <laughs> you know, usually with some kind of languishing maiden who looks a lot more masculine than they really ought to, but that's, that's, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back. Episode. I'm gonna push back here for a second. Sure. Um, Beowulf, I think you're right. Gilgamesh, I think you're right. But in the Iliad, Patroclus has one job, which is to die and, ma <laughs> and make Achilles angry. It, it it seems to me that Homer very much subscribes to the great man, great hero theory, rather than rather than this kind of communal emphasis that you're that you're talking about in Beowulf and Gilgamesh. Mm, okay. All right. I mean, let, Patroclus let, is let essentially the black guy in a horror movie. <laughs> let, 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 let me counterpunch on that, Michael, because while Patroclus does die and that's his primary plot function, he also spends a lot of that poem standing in for Achilles when Achilles is being Terrell Owens. Yeah, he puts on his armor. Yeah. Well, and he actually goes in and fights against the Trojans when Achilles is refusing to. All right. I mean, 
Yeah, I, mean, he, I, I guess I see what you're saying. He, but at that, that point, he seems less like sidekick and more like replacement. Poor replacement. Yeah. Well, you know, well, you don't really get until he gets up until he gets toe to toe with Hector. But who really does well against Hector? Achilles. Except Achilles. <laughs> well, yeah. That... <laughs> well, it's like Robin. Robin decided to take Joker on his own, and that just did not turn out well. Is that true? Does the Joker kill Robin? Um, I think it at least one the Joker kills Robin. But there's like more than one Robin. I can right. never keep track of that. Right, and nobody's ever really dead in comic books anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Has but, Captain America come back yet? Does anyone know? Oh, <laughs> well, they had the movie. I well, the movie's kind of a weird reboot. I'm not even sure what continuity it's even supposed to be in. Doesn't Captain America use a gun in the movie? Uh, yeah, well, he I did never in the saw old... it, so I couldn't tell you. He did in the oldest comic books. Oh, did he? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know that stuff better than I do. That's yeah, why. I, pop... That's why I made you do the superhero episode. He'd pop a cap in a Nazi. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like any good man would for his country. Um, but uh, let's see. Captain I, I America guess... and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> 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 the Captain America of the Confessing Church. Now there's a crossover. I'd love to see. Somebody call Eric Metaxas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So it, it doesn't look as if Campbell can teach me how to talk about sidekicks the way he taught me to talk about heroes. Um, so, Michael, I guess we're just going to have to set up our own taxonomy, um, our own ad hoc taxonomy of sidekicks, um, and illustrate it with examples. Um one of these we've discussed before. If uh, if listeners haven't gone so far back into the past as to have listened to the detective fiction ex- episode that we recorded, um, they can do so. Just you know, don't stop and do that. Just keep listening and then go back and do it. Um, we talked about uh, the sidekick who serves as a reader surrogate when the larger than life hero makes reader identification really either impossible or, or not really even something the author wants. Um, and we used Arthur Conan Doyle's Watson as an example of this. So what kind of things can you do with this kind of reader identification sidekick? Well, I will point out that um, as with so many other things, Doyle gets that from Poe's uh, Auguste Dupin mysteries, the, th- the mm, three mysteries, yeah. because Poe also has... An unnamed narrator who is not exceptional, who tells you all about Dupin, and, and it, it, I mean, it makes sense huh. from an authority. Uh, and Watson's much better developed, like everything else. I mean, Doyle takes the the form Poe sets out and he perfects it. I, I don't, I don't know if anybody could could seriously argue that the Doyle stories aren't better than the Poe stories. Mm. I, I suppose somebody probably does, but they're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, you can see you can see where it would be an advantage from a authorial perspective because how can you speak as an utter genius, you know? How can you have Holmes narrate his own story if you're not as smart as Holmes? And since Holmes is kind of a superhero, how are you going to be as smart as Holmes? How could you have Achilles narrate his own story? Although it's not like pa- uh, Patroclus narrates it, but you, you get the point. You have to stand outside of this hero, and, and one easy way to do that is to come up with this sidekick, this this character who walks alongside the hero and yet is constantly amazed by him. And th- this is especially effective when you're talking about mystery stories, because the narrator of the story thus won't figure out the mystery until the very end when the <laughs> when the great detective <laughs> explains it to him, and since people who read mystery stories often read them to try to figure out what's going on before they're told, it, it's it's a perfect narration. So I forget mm. the guy who said it, but he said that the the Watson character has to be just a little dumber than the audience, for, first <laughs> of all, and he can't have an unexpressed thought. Right. Uh huh. So the sidekick allows you to, as a as a writer, to approach your your superhero, your hero, your detective, your genius, your whatever, without actually having to get inside his head, which would be, after all, impossible. Mm-hmm. Holmes Holmes has to stay removed from us so that we can still admire him, and so that we can enjoy the story as right. it's structured. 
Right, and and so you you come up with Watson, who's this figure of he's not an imbecile. You know, oh, he's, by no he's, means. he's he's of he's of above average intelligence, and yet he is not intimidating to us the way Holmes is intimidating to us. So we're given permission to not understand. We're given permission to try to figure it out, and and in in that way, the sidekick becomes an audience surrogate. And you you know, I you figure somebody like Robin is also a, an audience surrogate because the people who would have been reading comic books when Robin was introduced would mostly have been children and teenagers uh, I, yeah. I don't believe it was appropriate for adults to read comic books at that time and so robin is the boy wonder he is he is a way for a reader to put himself into the story and that's why he's kind of bland as well because a lot of times if you don't have an excellent writer like doyle your your audience surrogate is going to end up being kind of boring because you have to the, the the reader has to be able to kind of implant himself into the story, put his own face over the face of the sidekick, and so if if you don't have a great if you don't have a, a great writer, it, it can be difficult to um, write a character that is simultaneously able to serve as an audio, audience surrogate and as a character in his own right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I would just say that, uh, you know, the teenage sidekick is something that, you know, has really gone out of favor as far as I can tell in recent decades. And I think it's interesting that, you know, now uh, one of the shows that my son likes to watch when we go to other people's houses because we don't have cable, uh, but Cartoon Network has a show that is called Teen Titans. And it's basically a team consisting entirely of teenage sidekicks or former teenage <laughs> sidekicks. Uh, I mean, who do their own thing. And I mean, you know, uh, one of the recurring gags is that, you know, they squabble and bicker like teenagers. And sometimes they miss their chance to close the case 10 minutes into the episode. <laughs> but e- even well before that, I mean, when uh, when Stan Lee... I believe Stanley invented Spider-Man, right? Uh, and Jack Kirby. The the actual input of Lee is debated. Okay, all right, all right. But that's it, right. That's at the right. very Kirby least, it was Stanley and Jack guy. Kirby. Okay, yeah, Kirby was the name I was searching for, Michael. Thank you. But, you know, when they took a teenage character and made him the main character of his own comic book, I mean, that was a decided departure from that, and it really sort of set comic book heroes on a different trajectory. I do want to talk about the detective sidekick, though, for just a minute, David, because that is something that definitely has translated into a lot of television police procedurals. Uh, You'll have the inscrutable, brilliant main character, uh, usually emotionally damaged because, after all, it's modern television. Uh, But then you'll have, you know, for instance, you know, Mary and I are watching Monk on... Netflix right now. Oh, yeah. And, you you know, you always have either Sharona or Natalie, you know, the woman who acts as his assistant, you know, Team who Natalie. takes care of his... What now? Team Natalie. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but who is, you know, an eminently normal, balanced, sane person. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, something like NCIS. I know Michael's going to make fun of me for being old because I've watched a lot of NCIS. <laughs> this is an old person show. <laughs> it really is, but uh, <laughs> you, know, you have your uh, your main character played by Mark Harmon, and I can't even remember the character's name, but then you know he is decidedly an enigma in the show, whereas the side characters, so to speak, are flawed and normal and, you know, for the audience to identify with, so uh, like I said, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't have much beyond that other than it translates well into television. And, then, and, and on television, all these shows that have the brilliant detective and, and the normal sidekick will have an episode or two where the sidekick ends up kind of going off on his or her own and solving the mystery. Because you have yes. to break up the formula. That That's a break Poe never got to, and as far as I know, um, Doyle never got to either. But that's a that's a standard um, a standard thing on the TV detective shows. Right, but when you go eight seasons and 24 episodes a season, you got to break things up occasionally. Right. And, and, and to, to, I mean, to be fair, I don't think either Poe or Doyle really could because they're writing stories that are told through a first-person narrator. Yeah. You know, it's, you know... It's, 
um, Doyle was the camera, or uh, uh, Watson was the cameraman, <laughs> right? In 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 effect. Um, now there there is you know I'll just because we because we got to move on, but there is an author who actually did kind of do that, and that's uh, Rex Stout with his Nero Wolf novels. I don't know if either of you guys are familiar with them. I'm not. But all right, Nero, no. Nero Wolf is a consulting detective in the vein of Sherlock Holmes. Even more so, he will not leave his house. Everyone has to come to him. Uh, but he has his his sidekick and agent Archie, um, who basically runs all of his errands. And so, any kind of action, any kind of suspense, any kind of you know gunplay or questioning suspects on their own turf. Any of that has to be done by the first person narrator sidekick character. Huh. Who is a um he's a hard boiled noir gumshoe. And so hmm. basically you have the hard boiled noir gumshoe first person narrator with all of his skepticism and sarcasm and all of that as the first person narrator sidekick to the, the enigmatic Sherlock Holmes character. And that's an inversion of two genres, because not only should the sidekick not be tough, the mm-hmm. no, the hard-boiled noir gumshoe does not work with anybody. Yeah. Right, I mean, Philip, <laughs> Philip Marlowe never had a partner. I work alone. Well, I guess Eddie Valiant did, <laughs> t- till the tune killed his brother, but that's, the, you know, that's a different story. <laughs> but the... Uh... And, you know, and Stout recognizes that tension, which is why they constantly wrangle, and why in just about every book, Archie tenders his notice. Um, Archie is such a great sidekick name. It is. If it you is. name your child Archie, you're pretty much do- uh, dooming him to a life of sidekickery. There you go. <laughs> or redheadedness. Right. Right. <laughs> which, yeah. So, anyway. Um, but I, I wanted to throw that one out out there because that's that's one uh, one one detective story that actually manages to uh, kind of give us a sort of an ice cream sandwich of Sherlock Holmes and uh, you know Philip Marlowe, um, and it it works out interestingly. Um, of course, you know maybe this is maybe that's one of the cases that gets close to the next kind of sidekick I want to talk about. Uh, which is the sidekick who actually outshines the protagonist. Um, you know, my my favorite example of this is Wodehouse's Jeeves, and I call him the sidekick mm-hmm. ex machina because he's the sidekick who saves the day. <laughs> um, I mean, he's hardly the only one, though. Um, do you want to you want to pursue this track for a while, Nathan? Well, oddly enough, when I was trying to think of sidekick ex machina, because it's such a prevalent device in children's movies uh, uh those yeah. are the examples that kept coming to mind i mean just to uh i'll come back to jeeves here in a second but i mean for instance the entire spy kids franchise uh consists of antonio banderas who of course is entirely smooth and irresistible to women although he's a family man in that series uh but he's also entirely incapable of outsmarting the bad guys and his <laughs> kids have to come with their spy devices and save him in every sequel to that silly, silly movie. Uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, is very, very appealing to kids. Uh, I know my son just, you know, loves the spy kids movies much, <laughs> much to my irritation, but, uh, you know, it is precisely <laughs> the idea that, you know, the world is set up to favor the Antonio Banderas's of the world, but the, uh, the witty, sassy 11-year-old girl ends up saving the day. Uh, and what, what's interesting, of course, is that to a lesser degree, uh, the entire Cartoon Network series Star Wars The Clone Wars is premised on that because you've got a character who does not appear in any of the six movies, uh, Ahsoka Tano, uh, who is a teenage girl Jedi Padawan, uh, who at least once every third episode comes in and saves the day when... Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker are incapable of doing so. And so, you know, this is, you know, one of those things that I think is, it, it, it certainly gets a start, David, you're right, with Jeeves, the 
the one who is separated by class lines and occupational lines from the main character. Uh, but I think it gets picked up very, very frequently uh, in movies that are movies and television shows that are pitched towards children. Uh, and it's one of those things that, again, to go back to that earlier question, like you said, it's one of those things where if you are not one of the Sherlock Holmeses of the world, or if you're not the uh, King Achilles type, it's kind of nice to read a story where the person in your social position steps up and ends up being the one who saves the day. Right. It allows you to look down on the hero instead of looking up. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it, it makes the hero not necessarily despicable, but certainly uh, less untouchable. Right. I think of Inspector Gadget when I think of that trope. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's, an, that's another child sidekick. Go ahead, Michael. Right, well, Inspector Gadget is this, you know, technological marvel who can do all these uh, all, all these wonderful things. And yet it's always his... Is it, It's his niece, Penny? I believe so, yeah. It's not his daughter. Yeah, so his niece and a dog save the day every single week. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's kind of that trope taken to its extreme. When you're dumber <laughs> than your dog, you know. Maybe it, maybe it's time for you to find a different line of work. Well, to be fair, it's a super intelligent dog named was it Brain? Brain Is that his yeah. name? I believe okay. so. Yeah. Penny's, Penny's running around with that like 486 computer. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that show in years. But she's also got the mat, the same kind of magical hacking abilities that you see in police procedurals these days. Right, except that her computer is a tenth as advanced, a hundredth as advanced. <laughs> so she must really be good at it. Right. Yeah. And incidentally, the 11 year old hacker. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably does get its start in Inspector Gadget, gets picked up by Jurassic Park, and oh, now it is just a Park. staple in kids' movies. And see, that that can backfire so easily. So you think of uh, Wesley Crusher. To see just how just how badly that trope can go, how odious it can go, (laughs) (laughs) or that new show Terra Nova, which I think has now been officially canceled because it focused too much on the uh, incredibly boring exploits of its teen protagonist instead of on you know dinosaurs and stuff. Right, right. Precocity can be soul killing. I hate wise children. I mean, it, it, just a, it, it, it may be my least favorite Hollywood trope, the super intelligent, wise, sage-like child. It drives right. me nuts. I just want to drown those kids. You know, you know what would be well, brilliant? I, Take that trope, that? Make, make the super wise child the hero, and make the bumbling adult the sidekick who ends up saving the day. <laughs> I think I think David's got his first cartoon series. <laughs> there you go. The 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 oh look at that dad is competent series. And actually, David, I hate to tell you, but I think someone might have already done that when Jackie Chan had his cartoon series. Oh yeah. You just described the plot line of a lot of the episodes. How many hours <laughs> a day do you spend watching the Cartoon Network, Nathan? <laughs> Uh, honestly, when we are at other people's houses, that is one of the things that Micah loves most is to watch these kids' TV shows because we don't have them at home. Now, we do have them on Netflix, and he does watch that Jackie Chan TV show, which I think is 10 years old now. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the the usual plot is that, you know, Jackie Chan is the bumbling main character. His precocious niece very nearly saves the day, but because of her lack of wisdom and experience ends up getting into trouble. And then his aged uncle comes along and ends up saving both of them. Well, they can do that because they live in Kung Fu world in which your 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 wisdom and Kung Fu power are, you know, exponential relative to your age. Well, this is true. Yeah, I mean, he is definitely the <laughs> Kung Fu wizard character. The longer and whiter your beard, the more likely it is that you can you can own any other character. And if you look like if you look like a catfish in one of those uh, cartoons, you know, then 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 you're at the top of the heap. Exactly, exactly. I think that's 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 sort of like the the whole uh, uh, East Asian respect for their elders being sort of uh, mashed into an an incredible kung fu movie trope. 
Awesome. Which, well, actually, we've 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 actually kind of segued there um, because uh, I didn't I didn't watch the uh, that Green Hornet movie that came out. Um, I'm not sure anybody watched the Green Hornet movie that came out. <laughs> well, but I saw the trailer, <laughs> and the trailer told me everything that I know. In fact, the casting choices told me everything that I know. I mean, the Green Hornet's supposed to be the hero, but actually, the only guy who looks like he's he's worth anything in you know in the trailer and from what I've heard, read of the of the reviews in the movie itself is his sidekick Cato. Um. You know the uh, is he is he Japanese He's is Filipino. he Korean Filipino he is in the, the act, he is in the, the original radio the, serial the actor or the character uh, the character the see character. what happened you know that's a World War Two series it, it it started in the late thirties and um, mm-hmm. once Pearl Harbor happened his ethnicity was always you know it was never mentioned he was vaguely Asian and then when Pearl Harbor happened they <laughs> declared him Filipino. So that everybody uh-huh. would know Kato was not Japanese, even though Kato, uh, I believe, is a Japanese name. Yeah, I. Well, it's certainly it's certainly phonetically built like one. So minority sidekicks, I guess we're kind of already there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Whenever you see it manifest in movies these days, um, it always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And I, I've frequently heard it said that you know, man, that's just racist. Um, but you know, I think a Huck Finn's Jim or Tonto or Cato, you know, is, is it just racist or have I pulled that card too quickly? I mean, it, gu- it, guide me. <laughs> it, it is. It's definitely uncomfortable. I mean, you have you have the noble white hero and the non-white sidekick who you know, follows him or serves him or serves as a figure of comedy as Tonto often does. Mm. Uh, Jim is a grown man with a wife and child who nevertheless hitches his wagon to a 14-year-old star. Um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Who, who at the end of the story is outwitted by Tom Sawyer and, and uh. almost, almost, put, almost sold back into slavery because of it. I mean, there, there's there's lots of reasons there's lots of reasons to be uncomfortable with the uh, ethnic sidekick. Uh, ethnic is a stupid term because everybody's ethnic, even even white people. The non-white sidekick to the white hero. There's right. lots of reasons to be uncomfortable with that. Although I I learned this from the uh, Donald Kagan lectures on the uh, ancient Greek city states, available <laughs> on iTunes U. Uh, ethne in Greek originally referred to everyone except the Greeks. Oh, so it's actually correct for me to call other yeah, people Yeah, yeah, I mean, so for instance, I mean, it was a great insult that they referred to Philip of Macedon as the chief of an ethne. Interesting. Mm. So if you're not Greek, you're sub, ethnic. Sub-Greek. Well, I, so I, I Tina, Tina Fey and uh, Eric Metaxas aren't ethnic, but the rest of us are. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> well, I, I think we can kind of see that when um, in in the New Testament you see ethne being used uh, to tra- to as the as the Greek equivalent uh, in in passages where um, nations or goyim would have been yeah. used in Hebrew, and right. and and in the Old Testament the nations are always everyone else. Yeah. Although sometimes that noun does refer to the nation of Israel, so it's 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 even complex in the Old Testament. I just want to point out. Okay. Goyim See. sometimes means the nation of Israel. No, in the plural, it always means everyone else. But goy oh. sometimes refers to the the nation of Israel. I am not sure uh. I knew goyim meant nations. I've uh, I always thought that meant Gentile. Well, it does. Well. <laughs> means nation. Then shiksa is the female version, right? What now? I'm Shiksa, not, Goyim, and Shiksa. Not being Yiddish and all, I'm I'm not really sure. Anyway, I think yeah, we, may have, we may have gone far afield here. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Well, we are talking about the ethnic sidekick. <laughs> but the point is, I think your uneasiness with the ethnic sidekick is justified, and I, I I've been racking my brain trying to think of one 
think of an example where the ethnic sidekick is kind of the noble one and the the white hero is the idiot and i'm sure those exist but i can't come up with one nathan can you help me is is there one of your son's cartoons that, that's, it, uh, it seems like, like that's something that should appear in more modern tv shows and books mm-hmm. and i mean I, I i guess i mean you know one example that's borderline might be uh jules and vincent in pulp fiction I mean, Vincent is definitely the hothead. He's definitely the one who loses his way in the world, and Vincent has to pull him back. Right. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of other examples. I I, I honestly hadn't thought about that, about the reversal of the ethnic (laughs) sidekick, you know, being the competent one. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China? I never saw that. It's it's been a while. Go ahead, David. Okay. Um... That that one just occurs to me. Um, oh, well, I got one. We, watched it. Uh, watched it a few nights ago. In that, Kurt Russell uh, is is Jack Burton, the uh, the hard drinking, womanizing Kurt Russell know, type <laughs> uh, trucker with two fists of fury, and uh, with him is this uh, little Chinese guy played wonderfully by Dennis Dunn, uh, who's referred to nothing to double. Re- re- Exactly. Referred to as nothing, uh, just as Wang the whole time through. That's Wang, the, really? Well, that's his name. Yeah, really. Uh, oh my gosh. But uh, the the more you go in, the, the whole the whole adventure takes place within San Francisco's Chinatown, and Wang is the one who's who knows people, who know who the good guys and bad guys are, who knows where things are, who knows what to do, and when you actually when it actually comes time to fight, it turns out that. Uh, Wang is actually way, way better than that, way way better at that even than Jack Burton is. So that mm-hmm. there's a, there's actually one one fight in which, you know, Jack runs out of bullets and so he steps to the side to reload. And by the time he steps back into the scene, Wang's already leveled like eight guys, and and they're all lying around groaning on the floor. And there's this wonderful moment where. You know, the Kurt, you know, Kurt Russell looks over at the at the Asian character and just and just kind of, just kind of sighs, and the Asian guy just shrugs. <laughs> it, um, I, I watched the movie with commentary, and uh, in at, at that point, Kurt Russell explains that his idea for the movie was that he didn't actually see himself as the hero. He thought he he said, you know what's a, this is actually a Chinese movie. I'm the ethnic sidekick. Oh, interesting. But because I'm white, I don't know it. <laughs> and the yeah. Asian and the Asian hero is too polite to point out that I'm not the protagonist. Nice. Hey, here's a question, guys, and and it's been years and years since I've seen any of the movies. But would the Lethal Weapon movies count? I never saw them. I mean, would partners, any, I mean, though, right? I I have I'm vague memories of. Crap. Well, yeah, I have vague memories of Danny Glover's character being the one who bails Mel Gibson out over and over again, but beyond those vague memories, I can't really conjure much yeah, about that, those movies. That was much more of a partnership than it was sidekickery. Okay, um, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. The, the stories were just as much about Danny Glover as they were about Mel Gibson. Um, okay, okay. But, but I think that's, that's actually... Um, that's actually an upgrade. I think if that if if those movies had been made twenty years before that, uh-huh. it pro- it probably would have followed the other formula. Well, gotcha, I don't know. Gotcha. I Spy. I uh, Bill Cosby wasn't the sidekick in I Spy, was he? They were partners, and that was roughly twenty years before. Was it? I I believe so. I, I've never seen I Spy, so I don't know. But I I I think Cosby wasn't the he wasn't the wise cracking sidekick. <laughs> I was just well, thinking have... of the Royal Tenenbaums and thinking of Royal's sidekick Pagoda. If you'd like to <laughs> guess his ethnicity, you, you, I'm sure you can. But that 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 plays the trope straight rather than inverting it. Then I was thinking of the movie um, Shanghai Noon. With yeah. Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan, and that's an example I think where the the quote unquote ethnic character is far more competent and intelligent than the. The white character, although again, I think gotcha, that I think gotcha. I think there, Jackie Chan is probably the hero, and Owen Wilson is the ethnic sidekick. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like you know Will Smith movies, where he often has a white counterpart. It's it's hard to think of either one as a sidekick figure. 
Right. I'm thinking, you know, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, movies like that. I try not to think about Wild Wild West <laughs> to the best of my ability. <laughs> I'm sure Will Smith has the same policy. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably everyone yeah. involved with that doesn't want to think about that much. So, uh, that one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, problematic, a problematic trope, right? I mean, the, yeah. the ethnic sidekick at least opens the door to certain accusations that, that it can be difficult to refute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I pretty much exist. I pretty much exhausted my uh, my imagination as to coming up with different variations on this theme. I'm almost certain I've left something out. So I guess we can just kind of go around. Uh, Nathan, do you want to? Uh, do you have anything to augment my my ad hoc taxonomy? Have you got some kind of favorite version of a sidekick that I, due to my blindness, have left out? I'm not sure if it's a sidekick type, but it's a character I like a good deal, and okay. I'm going to label it the sidekick successor. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, first and foremost because I uh, hit my teen years in the early 90s of Commander Riker in Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, And I mean, I remember thinking that, you know, Patrick Stewart, and I still think this way of Patrick Stewart, is this lofty, untouchable, almost superhuman wise man. Uh, But Riker, he was coming into his own that whole series. And by the time they got to the movies, after the series had ended on TV, you know, a lot of the main storylines had to do with, you know, Patrick, or... Jean-Luc Picard, let's name the character, uh, <laughs> being taken out of commission for some reason or another. He's you know on the planet and he can't beam back up to the Enterprise. Whatever else happens, and Riker actually becomes the captain of the Enterprise. And so I mean you know that progression, which really you know takes a lot of time. It almost takes a whole television series to execute. Uh, is one of those things that I really, really do enjoy in a sidekick character. The, the, the other one that immediately comes to mind is uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the six Star Wars movies. You know, he's decidedly the sidekick to Qui-Gon Jinn in episode one, but of course by uh, episode episodes four, five, and six, he is the wizard figure guiding Luke Skywalker. And so, you know, I, I think that it's not necessarily a separate type of sidekick so much as it is what happens when you extend a sidekick's career beyond the sidekick phase? Uh, I really like when a sidekick becomes the main character and then eventually becomes the mentor to the main character. Almost like spinoffs. So you have kind of a heroic yeah, life yeah. cycle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I like sidekicks better when they last long enough to grow out of being a sidekick. Yeah. Well, we lost close to that at the end of Beowulf, but you know. Oh, sure, the, sure. The po- the poem ends before uh, he can get beyond <laughs> the uh, "I am so out of my depth" stage. There's your children's cartoon you can make. Yeah, with the Adventures of Wiglaf. <laughs> we lost adventures in the waning Gidish nation. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! What about you, Michael? Um. I was thinking of the kind of inverse of the sidekick, which is the villain's henchman. Oh, yeah. And in in particular, I like the kind of idiot henchman who consistently foils the villain's plots without even meaning to. And for some reason, I did, Mr. Luthor. (laughs) For some reason, I am thinking of uh, Bebop and Rocksteady from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Of course you are. <laughs> well, I was seven years old when that uh, when that cartoon premiered, and so uh, you know it was a formative part of my childhood. But you know the, these guys were they're they're they a couple of dumb street punks who whom the 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 mastermind the shredder is always trying to get to do things, and then they when they invariably screw it up, he kind of knocks their heads together, and that that's a trope I enjoy. I, I enjoy the the henchman who. When the supervillain has gone too far, the henchman goes and helps helps the uh, the good guys defeat him because you know there's evil and then there's evil. Yeah, right. I enjoy that. And in fact, one of the things I've liked about the last two seasons of The Office, which has been generally terrible, is that Dwight now has a henchman, uh, <laughs> Nate, 
who 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 fits pretty much both of those tropes, and I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so I actually like a henchman better than a sidekick, mostly because evil is more exciting than good. <laughs> well, certainly more I, interesting in a lot of contexts. All right, see see if you guys can help me. In the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, what was that character's name? Lex Luthor's idiot henchman. I've never seen those movies. Oh mm, gosh, and I, and I mean, here recently, you know, he did the voice of uh, Lotso on Toy Story Three. Ned Beatty. So, I mean, I know. Yeah, Ned Beatty's the actor, but I can't remember the character's name. But at any rate, I mean, that that's immediately who I thought of, Michael. You know, you've got Gene Hackman who plays the best Lex Luthor ever. Um, you know, hatching his schemes and then that character and listeners write in, tell me who the character's name is. I'm sure I'll look it up on IMDb, but get on the comment board and tell me who it is anyway. Uh, inevitably fouls it up and, you know, uh, great stuff. Anyway, thanks, Michael. I'd, I hadn't thought of that character for some time. Wouldn't a real supervillain just kill that guy? Why does, why does Shredder keep Bebop and Rocksteady around? <laughs> I mean, they're they're consistently screwing things up. They ruin his plans. He doesn't get to take over the world and dine on turtle soup and whatever other weird things he wants to do because they <laughs> screw you do it that, up. Then, then you're in a Tim Burton movie. Right. And nobody wants that. Although, you <laughs> know, is, is he going to force choke him? Is that, is that because they've, they've failed him for the last time? One of my, yeah, one of my favorite things about the movie Mystery Men, which I think is generally an underrated movie. Uh, is Casanova Frankenstein the bad guy? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ha- has to be the best bad guy name of all time, Casanova Frankenstein. <laughs> but he, at one point, you know, he has all these, uh, all, all these gangs that, that work for him, the not-so-goody mob and the frat boys. At one point, he just takes a gun and starts shooting them and says, see, I even kill my own guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he uh, he's he's a great villain. But that's the well, that's another example of of a, of a of a of a sidekick team. Um, I mean, practically all of those guys are terrible, terrible sidekicks right. who just who just can't haven't even made the the sidekick cut. The shoveler. <laughs> well, yeah, there's one thing that he's good at. God gave him a gift. He shovels well. I have never seen this movie. <laughs> it's uh, it it flopped like crazy when it hit the bo- when it hit theaters, but it was it was good. It was a good movie. It was very funny. Uh, it's, well, it's if a- you yeah, if you ever wanted to watch a movie in which William H Macy hits people with a shovel, <laughs> and, and uh, okay. Ben Stiller plays the Ben Stiller character, Mister <laughs> Curious. True. Janine Garofalo there. plays the Bowler. Yeah. Who I guess is the only one who actually has a superpower. Yeah, well, but that's because the ball is haunted. Her her anyway. father was a superhero until he fell down an elevator shaft on onto some bullets. <laughs> <laughs> it's a game wow. I, I thought it was an underrated movie. Yeah, it it just came out at the wrong time. That's the problem. Came out at the wrong time. Well, I think we'd probably better wind this down because all of us have days we got to get to. Um, as fun as this is, I'll uh, be thinking about Casanova Frankenstein all day now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been we've been pretty theology light, um, and I mean we we've got to keep up at least at least the C and the CHP. We got to we got to do that somehow. Um, so we'll round out on a Christian note. Um, I'm going to keep trying to retro uh, retroactively fit myself into the episode in which you guys talk about the Philip Carey book. Um, <laughs> but uh, he makes a point that believing the gospel is in some sense entering God's story, but that we aren't the protagonist of that story that Jesus says. Right? But if we're trying to live within the adventure of what Friedrich Kleber called the most exalted hero life known – um, do we just get rescued a lot, or can we aspire to be sidekicks? Who are you asking that question to, David? I can't remember. Oh, <laughs> you, 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 Michael. Sorry. 
Well, I mean, I th- I think um, I think it's easy to read the disciples in the New Testament certainly as these kind of bumbling sidekicks who are always doing the wrong thing with the best of intentions, who always say the wrong thing, <laughs> who can't quite get it right until until after Christ uh, ascends to heaven and all of a sudden they're Commander Riker, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> P- Peter Peter and John can walk into the city and heal people, and you know it. it I'm not sure the rest of us can aspire to that, but maybe we can. Um, maybe we can settle for being the kind of bumbling sidekick, the comic relief figures. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with. It. I, I'd take that over being uh, over being the villain anyway. No, that's true. That's true. As long as we don't have to be henchmen. Right. Because <laughs> I'd be terrible at hinging. There you go. What about you, Nathan? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if we look to the book of Acts, we can definitely see um, some relationships where, for instance, Paul is not the main character because the Holy Spirit is always the main character in Acts, but certainly uh, the lead character and then, you know, Silas or Timothy or somebody else, Barnabas, uh, ends up being his sort of sidekick. And I think that that relationship that Acts sets up might actually be even more helpful for thinking about this than the four Gospels. Uh, and I, you know, my mind goes to those passages in Paul's letters uh, where he talks about the varieties of gifts. And, you know, I, I think that one of the things that we underplay in the modern Christian college, and you guys can tell me if this is unique to Emmanuel and Milligan, uh, but people are always talking about leadership this and leadership that and developing future leaders and so on and so forth uh, to the point where students who, you know, end up not being the extroverted, you know, star at every party types start to think that they have no place in that adventure that you talked about, David. Mm. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, for instance, the narratives and acts about Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy can teach us is that it might not just it might just not be your moment yet to be the one who is, you know, taking the lead. Or if we go to the uh, Ephesians and places like that, it might be that, you know, you are ultimately going to reach beatitude not by taking the lead, but by being somebody's sidekick. So in other words, you know, to go to Dante uh, and I realized you asked me about the Bible and I went to Dante. That's not fair. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the folks who are in, you know, the spheres of Venus and Mars and such, uh, one of the things that Dante is always obsessed with in the paradise is, you know, well, don't you kind of resent those people who are up in Jupiter and Saturn? And their answer is always, well, no, you know, this is where our greatest beatitude lies. If we were up there, we would be overwhelmed by it. And frankly, it would be miserable. Hmm. And so, you know, I I think that, you know, the sidekick is a a helpful character for us, you know, literarily precisely because, you know, I know at least in my case, you know, there are contexts and there are times when I would be miserable if I had to take the lead, but I'm very, very happy being a side character, a sidekick. And you know, I I I I kind of like being Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse people to be. You could be Randy. <laughs> you know, frankly, that that's where I spend most of my life in the Randy zone. So I <laughs> yeah, always all uh, aspiring to be Stottlemyre, but never quite managing. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your mind with uh, with Monk for a second. I know I know you didn't ask, but. Uh, so, so the, okay. the, the two cops' names are Leland Stottlemyre, L-E-S-T. Yeah. Randy's original name was Randy Deacon, not Randy Disher. So, L-E is the first two letters of Stottlemyre's first name. S-T, Stottlemyre. R-A, R-A-N, and then D-E for Deacon. Or, uh-huh. no, no, just R-A, yeah. It's the first two letters of each of their first names and last names. It spells Lestrade, who is the bumbling police detective or the yeah the police chief in uh sherlock holmes oh well there you go i don't know why they choose yeah that's cool <laughs> anyway again far afield that that's that's awesome 
Well, I, I, I like I like your I like your your suggestion that that there can be a kind of participatory heroism in the Christian yeah. life. I mean, I, I I always shy away from the notion that you know now it's my point to step in and be the sort of like the Campbellian, Campbellian lone hero guy. Um, mm. I I just you know I don't think I can sustain that weight. Um, you know, I, I don't think the scripture tells me that I can, but at the same time, you know, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't think I'm, I, neither am I called to a, a, a passive life of continuing to be just rescued, you know, like I'm forever right, the, right. the maiden tied to the train tracks. Yeah. So yeah, sidekick. I'll be a sidekick. I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean. <laughs> uh, I, I know myself too well to think of myself as a hero. <laughs> Maybe I can be a good Robin. Maybe I can get in some good punches. You know, I'll settle for not the worst Robin, <laughs> or, or not the girl Robin. Yeah, I think there was a girl at one point. I anyway, I, I guess that's my awkward attempt at a wrap up. Um. So what, are we, what what have we got going on uh, in our next episode? Who's on the helm? I am. Um, I think uh, because my intro to philosophy class has just started this subject, and because uh, I'm going to make you guys do my work for me, I think we're going to discuss <laughs> epistemology. Yay! Woo. So that should be fun, and then my uh, my students can listen and realize how little I know about the subject. There you go. <laughs> No, I think they'll be scintillated by the uh, by the back and forth dialogue and the uh, the give and take, the the interplay of 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 you know sort of scholastic conversation. Right, that's that's what we hope anyway. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, look forward to that uh, next week, listeners. We when we get all epistemic upends, as as they say. Actually, no one says that ever. I just said that. Um, in the meanwhile, watch out uh, uh, on the blog for, uh, well, I guess more lectionary posts. And uh, if you've got any any sidekicks that we've left out, you know, if you're a serious Doctor Who fan and we have not given the companions their due, or you know, I don't know, something like that, um, let us know. Send us an email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com or post in the comments on our blog, uh, uh, christianhumanist.org. When the show notes post, you can just dive right in there. Uh, also, you can, uh, well, actually, not, you, you can do this, and we would also really like it if in iTunes you would give us a really, really good rating. That is how we can ascend the food chain um, of, of iTunes U, is with your, uh, with your input. So in, uh, in the meanwhile, I wish you all a grand week. And uh, on the behalf of Nathan Gilmore, on the behalf of Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs, uh, leaving you with the words of Luther, to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.